Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guys need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant, look! They slash across country like scythes. Wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Tanks, bombs, they're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies whom no one has ever seen. Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. Hi guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm your host Jimbo, and joined once again this morning by the lovable Kyle. The lovable Kyle. We thought Terrence was going to make this episode, but alas, he must have slept through his alarm once again. Uh, today we'll be discussing for episode 77, 
the original, well, the original was a radio broadcast, but the original movie. The original the, film. film <laughs> the War of the Worlds. That's right, Jimbo. So, Kyle, if you had to place this in, as to the importance of sci-fi movies, where would you place this movie? Ooh, I, I, mean, I think it's a foundational work, so I mean, it has to be somewhere like in the top tier echelons of sci-fi cinema. So, like, easily like somewhere like top five or top ten, you know, just under like you know, like yeah, you know, it's like War of the Worlds, uh, uh, the Day of the Earth Stood Still, Day of the Earth Stood Still, and uh, uh, UFOs, uh, Flying Saucers versus uh, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, Flying Saucers versus versus the World or something like that. Um, so easily up there, like. Top five or top ten, like foundational works of all sci-fi, I believe. Might have to yeah. agree. I think it might be the best one. So yeah, it's definitely it's it's certainly up there. I thoroughly enjoyed. All right, yeah. Kyle, take it away. The War of the Worlds. All right, The War of the Worlds, released in August twenty sixth, nineteen fifty three, in the United States, was directed by Brian Haskin. Um, writers include the H.G. Um, um, Wells for the original book, of course, and then Barry Lyndon was for the screenplay adaptation. Next, we have producers George Powell, composers Leith Stevens. Cinematographer George Barnes and editor Everett Douglas. No relation. No relation. <laughs> yeah. Going on to the uh, looking at technical details here, which I can't seem to find off the top of my head. There it is. Okay, we have a runtime of 85 minutes. Sound mix of three channel stereo, the Western Electric recording. Color info we have color and the um, black and white newsreel archival footage before the opening credits. Aspect ratio, we have a 1.37 by 1 for the intended ratio and a 1.66 by 1 for the theatrical ratio. Camera, we use the technical, we use the Technicolor 3 strip camera. And for the laboratory, we use the Technicolor Hollywood in California for the US of A. Film length, we have 2,332, um, I believe it's meters there um, for the Netherlands copy. That's why an odd distinction there. Negative format, of course, 35 millimeters. And the process is in Technicolor and spherical. Ooh, and let's see here. Going forward, we have the full-on awards. Da, 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 da. The awards we have, the uh, National Film Preservation Board in the USA won the award for National Film Registries, and now it's part of that whole uh, it's honor. And for the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films in the USA, it won a Hall of Fame award. And next up for the Academy Awards US of A, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound Recording and won an Oscar for Best Effects and Best Special Effects. And that is the award for the worlds. Moving on to the cast here, we have cast we have of course Gene Barry playing Dr. Clayton Forrester. He was the uh, grandfather in the uh, 2005 version of The War of the Worlds, and uh, also played in the 1957 movie The 27th Day, and he was on the um, the show Burke's Law between 1963 and 1966. Next up, we have Anne Robinson playing Sylvia Ban Van Buren. Um, she played the grandmother in the um, re- in the 2005 version of War of the Worlds, and she was also in the 1959 film Imitation of Life and the 1988 film Midnight Movie Massacre. Going forward, we have Les uh, Treeman playing Major General Mann. Uh, he was in the 1959 film North by Northwest, which we covered on this very podcast. And on 1966 film, uh, The Fortune Cookie. And the 1960 film, The Story of Ruth. Going forward, we have Robert, Robert Cornthwaite playing Dr. Pryor. He was in such films as the 1950, uh, 1951 film, The Thing from Another World. 1962 film Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and the 1966 film The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Great movie. I haven't seen it personally. Yeah. 
Next up, we have Sandro um, Giglio. Um, yeah, Sandro Giglio playing Dr. Bilderbeck. Um, he was in the 1951 film When Worlds Collide, the 1952 film Assignment Paris, and the 1962 version of The 300 Spartans. Then, third, and then we have uh, Lewis Martin playing the pastor and Dr. Matthew Collins. Um, he was the court, uh, and he was in the 1955 film The Court Jester, the 1951 film Ace in the Hole, and the show Perry Mason between 1960 and 1963. And lastly, we have Cedric Hardwick as the commenter for the movie, um, the narrator, anyways. Um, he was in the 1941 film Suspicion, the 1956 film Around the World in 80 Days, and the 1956 film The Ten Commandments. And that is the cast of the 1953 War of the Worlds. Great job, great job. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jimbo. So, Kyle, this is where I put you on the spot. Give me the synopsis of War of the Worlds. The synopsis of War of the Worlds. Uh, aliens attack. Um, uh, a fringe. Aliens attack. I uh, know. Meteors strike Earth and uh, reveals that uh, aliens are inside and are actually invading um, the entire world. And the, it's about the story of uh, of, uh, of the U.S. government and the rest of the world trying to fight back and defeat the aliens. And there's also romance, sisterhood, and all kind of stuff. And I thought it was really cool at the beginning of this movie where they're looking at all the other planets about why they couldn't go to. Neptune, Neptune why they go Venus. Pluto. Yeah, yeah, it was really great. And it's very, and it's up front, so like they are Martians first and foremost. So this is definitely like you know aliens from Mars, that classic cliche. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this movie. Um, the estate of H.G. Wells uh, was so pleased with the final production that it offered George Powell his choice of any other of H.G. Wells's properties. What do you think Powell chose? Uh. If I remember correctly, I believe it was was it the Time Machine? The Time Machine. The Time from Machine. Nineteen sixty. Another sci-fi classic. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the Martian war machines had about twenty wires running to each one. Some were for suspension and maneuvering, while others carried power to the various lights and mechanisms. This was produced before there were lightweight circuits and sophisticated radio controls. So it's very interesting. Um, we'll talk a lot about the actual. Uh, Martians, if you will, and and how they looked and why they looked the way they looked and and the how they brought them together. There is a combination of like what they practically do and also artistic license of like you know limitations fostering creativity. Exactly. I, I mean yeah. the, the the way that they put these things together back then was just simply amazing. Very very uh, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word I'm trying to look for, but uh, you know intuitive designs basically. I think of the term when I use right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember. Uh, you know that the uh, from reading the book, I do believe they were walking tripods. You know what I mean? They had the legs. Yeah. You don't see that in this movie. Um, but uh, George Powell, he said, "I don't know how a tripod would walk," and they said he went with a flying machine instead, which it worked in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, it, it wouldn't have been uh, practical for uh, you know effects of that era. Yes, but it would have been really cool to see him walking around on the. It would have been like impressive Doc to see them try. Yeah, Doc Hawk legs, and they they they, they tried that um, pretty successfully in the 2005 version, I believe. Right. Yeah. In uh, one of the montages of destruction in this film, Martian fighting machines were superimposed over black and white footage of a lava flow destroying buildings in and around Naples, Italy during the 1944 eruption of Mount Vesuvius. 
Mm-hmm. So it's amazing how they take real news footage or pictures and superimpose over Just them. Just put it right in the screen. Right on there. Put it right. right in the movie. That's very uncommon today, but definitely this is definitely the era when like that was pretty common for like especially war films to just recycle old footage of... But not know. only that, but CGI has come such a long way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, accomplish, you, need to. You can accomplish more or less with CGI right. nowadays. And you know, back then they just had to rely on actual war footage or disaster footage to really get it done. Filming was halted briefly two days into filming when Paramount discovered that its filming rights of the novel were only for a silent version. It was quickly resolved through the kind permission of the H.G. Wells estate. So that's that's good that they said, sure, go ahead. You know what I mean? Well, I'm sure they wanted to make money too. Well, so. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure they, like that, But he gets his name out there and maybe sells more books. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. yeah it works out regardless. So it was, a, it was a good move on both on both sides to make this film, uh, especially since it's a classic today. Uh, the sound effects of the Martian War Machine's heat ray were created from three electric guitars played backwards. The sound of the Martian screaming after Forrester hit it with, uh, was a mixture of a microphone scraping along dry ice and a woman's scream played backwards. The former set of sound effects became widely used stock sound effects after the film uh, was released, and they are still in use today. Hmm. So it's amazing how something that they came up with, you know, hey, how is this going to sound? And then it's still used today. is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty. It's very impressive to see like how much stuff like just like you know don't throw any away. We might use it later, and like it's just one of those effects that like always kind of works. Cause it's just that kind of like perfect unsettling amount. Yeah, yeah. This this is the sad part right here. None of the original Martian war machines exist today. They were made out of copper, and after production, they were reportedly donated to a Boy Scout copper drive. Oh, well, it's sad to see it's gone, but also nice to see they get you know it went to a cool place you know. Being a copper drive and all kind of stuff. Yeah, everyone needs raw materials. <laughs> I'm sure there's definitely some fan models today going around. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing, in apparent of homage to the famous Orson Welles radio broadcast on Sunday evening, on Sunday evening, October 30th, in 1938, when the hatch of the Martian machine begins to unscrew, the same technique, a metal lid being turned on a glass jar, was used to create the sound effect. For yeah, that was really cool. You see, it just, yeah. just slowly rotates out. It's very weird. It's, also, it's, it's really creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the two Martian crashes that crashed in Los Angeles are actually the same machine from a different angle with the film image reversed. So, you know. It's, when it works, just go ahead. They won't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> the heat ray was created by burning welding wire with a blowtorch, forcing the sparks off of it. Uh, Gene Barry later admitted that acting in the film was very, very trying since he had n- never saw the Martian ships while filming his scenes. And had to react blindly to special effects shots that were added later. Now very common in Hollywood, but back then definitely like definitely like you need to just imagine this is here and not just work with another actor. So, right. Yeah. Um, another actor, um, Anne Robinson, actually reprised her role of Sylvia, Sylvia Van Buren in the B movie The Naked Monster in 2005. I know. I, that, I thought that I, was a very interesting. Like, I, I haven't seen it, but definitely like just the name The Naked Monster can you know, lead to the imagination. Well, not just that, but she's actually the same character from this movie, so it'd yeah. be really interesting to the, see how they played it's, that. It's a full sequel. <laughs> War of the Worlds 2, The Naked Monster. Crazy. Loves to be proud. Most of the soldiers in this movie aren't actors. They're actually National Guard troops going through real maneuvers, and I do believe they were from the Arizona National Guard from later in my notes. So it's very interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the Wilhelm scream, the Wilhelm scream that appeared in uh, the 37-minute mark, in which a stuntman Mushy Callahan suffered serious burns in real life as a private mil- uh, as the army private lit a fire by a Martian heat ray. So actually, apparently, suffered like real injuries about that, and they just put a whole Wilhelm scream over him the entire time. So we need to we need to do a whole episode just on the Wilhelm scream. It'd be interesting. Not about. I think it's appeared in like what 50, 60 movies somewhere around there. Uh, Not more. It's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely a classic. Yeah. Uh, this film had a budget of two million dollars. Of that sum, six hundred thousand or thirty percent of it was spent on live action scenes, while one point four million, seventy uh, percent, was spent on the extensive elaborative special effects. Mm. Here you go, Kyle. I know you're a Star Trek fan, so we'll say this. Yes, go for it. Two of the sound effects in this film inspire some of the most iconic sounds in the Star Trek: The Original Series. The sound of war machines hovering were created with an Echoplex tape echo machine by taking a simple uh, recorded sound that is picked up by the playback head and recorded again with a record head. The added natural sound of tape hiss along with the slight moving of the playback head to create a change in pitch multiplied the sound over and over, at which time they could turn off the record head and have a continuous loop of sound from which to draw. This same uh, technique was later used for the sound of the hand phaser. Also... The sound of the skeleton ray as Dr. Forrester, which was created by hitting an enormous empty oil storage tank and playing back uh, all but the first few milliseconds of the hit. Uh, This was also the method used to create the sound of the photon torpedo. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really impressive. Yeah, it's it's definitely like you know getting any kind of like strong kind of like mechanical reverberation is always going to be a classic for uh, sci-fi films, and this is like you know the, once again this being a foundational film in that kind of way definitely established a lot of those rules. Right. Um, reportedly, real army men would salute actor Les Tremaine, thinking it was a real general. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if they're just going through techniques though, and they didn't tell them, they... I might look it up later. But I don't remember the law of actually uh, like impersonating a police officer or, or uh, army official or something like that that being illegal. I don't know if that was technically in, a, in the law for films in that case until back in that time. So they could have had like a full-on uniform. I don't even know. Right. All right, look it up later. Uh, the sound of the spaceship shutting down was made by vacuum cleaners being turned off. <laughs> uh, I wonder which brand they use. I couldn't, they, there wasn't a notes we couldn't find anywhere. Um, this is very interesting, Kyle, because today is October 30th as we're recording this, even though this is going to be uh, re- you know played later. Mm-hmm. But it is actually... October 30th, 1938, uh, was the radio broadcast by Orson Welles during the evening before Halloween. Um, so it they played it and it scared numerous listeners, and they were pressured into making the first featured film. Orson Welles was pressured into say, hey, we're going to make this film, we want you to be part of it. He was like, I want no part of it, which is kind of ironic you know what i mean like yeah i think he would have done at least been the narrator or something would have been cool we have very interesting to say but i you know respect his choice whatever like he's got you know the creator he knew what he wants <laughs> i guess uh let's see here uh george powell originally wanted the audience to put on 3d glasses when the actors put on goggles the rest of the movie would have been in 3d oh <laughs> that would have been, that reminds me of that movie was a matinee with John Candy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, that was a great. That's yeah. that's another good film we could cover someday. Uh, the miniature sets were exact duplicates of real LA buildings. Ann Robinson recalled it looked like Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the name of the protagonist, Doctor Clayton Forrester, was borrowed by the popular series Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand in nineteen eighty eight to be the name of their villainous scientist. Mm-hmm. 
this year, last year. Uh, oh, makeup artist Charles um, Gamora and his daughter built the Martian out of paper mache and sheet rubber. They didn't have time to make new arms, so the Martians have giant arms of the original. Oh, oh so this oh, so this Martian has the giant arms of the original. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Leave Marvin was apparently offered the role of male lead. And uh, whew, looks like the Robert Rick uh, Rockwell appears uncredited as a state trooper in the film. Uh, Rockwell, that was the famous painter, right? Norman Rockwell. Oh, Norman Rockwell. Was the painter. <laughs> yes, Robert <God>. Rockwell. <laughs> I'm reading this note for the first time, folks. <laughs> Rockwell was the main lead in. Oh, that's right. Robert was another actor. Um, Robert was the male lead in our um, Miss Brooks in 1952. When the series changed its format, Rockwell was replaced by Gene Barry, who was the lead in this film. So fun little twist. <laughs> Wow, it's a sm- Hollywood is a smaller world. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, this was the first motion picture to film on the newly completed Harbor Freeway in Los Angeles, known as the Stack. The producers got special permission to drive on it before it opened in 1953. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the scene where Uncle Matthews attempts to communicate with the Martians, um, was created separately. Anne Robertson wasn't actually looking at anything when she screams at his death. In an interview, Robin said that she simply was simply told to scream as loud as she could. <laughs> just, 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 just scream. scream. Just scream. Just scream. Uh, throughout the movie, the cast is seen drinking Coke because Anne Robinson's contract forbade her from appearing to drink any alcohol. Anne Robinson also hated the wig that she was required to wear as her role as Sylvia. When she finally saw the completed film at a theater, however, she claimed that no one recognized her without the wig on. <laughs> Wow. Here, uh, I'm going to watch a movie. Nobody says anything. Well, she goes to the bathroom, puts the wig on. Ta da! Oh, it's her! Uh, this was a very interesting fact right here. A figure of uh, Walter Lance's most popular character, Woody Woodpecker, can be glimpsed in the branches of the tree uh, the initial Martian cylinder meteor flies over. Lance and George Powell were close friends, and Powell always worked an appearance of Woody Woodpecker into each of his films. Oh, wow. So I think that's pretty cool. World. Yep. Um, the Martian machines were models suspended by wires. For the final sequence where the Martians actually uh, machine dies, they were shown crashing on telegraph telephone poles. This allowed for the filmmakers to hide the suspension wires and the telegraph wires. Oh, yeah, I thought that was know. great that yeah, you could a, just throw it in there and nobody would even know any better. Exactly. So definitely some creative thinking on their part there and really impressive. Yeah. Um, the disintegration of Colonel Hefner took 144 individual mats. Um, earlier in the scene, the stuntman who betrayed the soldier catching on fire was badly burned. We already talked about that um, in the, uh, from the flames getting out of control. So, definitely a fun fact there. Right. Uh, the Martian death ray sound was made by attaching a slightly off-center wooden disc to a power drill, running it at fast at its fastest speed and touching it to a wound string on an electric guitar, similar to uh, the rock sound of being, or uh, sorry, similar to the sound of a pick being scraped along with a string, which later became a popular trick with rock guitarists. Cecil B. DeMille was due to direct this film when the rights were originally purchased in 1925, and Alfred Hitchcock was to direct a proposed version in the 1930s, but he turned it down. When the first cylinder flies overhead, the theater marquee features DeMille's film, Samson and Delilah. Yeah, yeah, I have here too. Um, Cecil DeMille's personal choice to produce a film after Hitchcock declined to direct a film was George Powell, who's renowned for his puppetoon animation technique in two earlier live-action sci-fi films, The Destination Moon in 1950 and When Worlds Collide in 1951. However, DeMille gave complete control to Powell over the production, and Brian Haskin was ultimately chosen to direct the film, a decision in which DeMille was pleased. Right. Yay. <laughs> um... Albert Nozowski, Nozowski, Nozaki, Nozaki, Wazowski, Wazowski, <laughs> Mike Wazowski, uh, uh, bases designs of the Martian machines on the shape and movements of 
manta rays, cobras, and swans. And you can see each one of those as they're... Yeah, very clearly in the film. It's like those are definitely clear inspirations for these um, creatures, which is always good. I feel like, like the further you go out in the animal world, you can kind of get those kind of alien-looking creatures in real life. You put a fish in outside of water, it always looks like an alien. Uh, <laughs> Not literally. And you put Kyle in the water, he looks like a fish. Exactly. It's one for one. I am a merman. (laughs) Um, Bob Hope appears in the film, not as an actor, but his name is on large red billboards seen after one of the churches visited by Dr. Clayton Forster. Yep. Uh, For the force fills, the crews filmed plastic bubbles against a uh, black screen and layered that over the war machine. So I thought that was very interesting how they did that because you can see those very clearly in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you're if you're watching this, if you get the uh, ultra high def 4K uh, version of this, I'm not sure is, if they're available on like 4K Blu-rays, but they are available on Voodoo. But like, yeah, the upscaling is. It, I told Kyle, I said, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, and and I kind of would like to still be able to flip it over to like a black and white, maybe you see, because I think it would have worked in black and white too. It's just scary. But it was really well done, especially in the 4K ultra-high-definition universe. Yeah, some of the modern remastering techniques we have nowadays are absolutely um, child-dropping sometimes. Right. And yeah, there's like still an appreciation for the old-school black and white or even old-school watching the film itself that way. But at um, the same time, like digital file remasters are just doing some amazing things and getting some incredible images sometimes. Right. So And uh, World of Worlds is definitely like an example of that case. Like That movie is transformed by the kind of the... the the 4K um, conversion to it, and it really brings out a lot of the colors that just weren't quite there originally, but it really makes them pop now. So, yeah, very impressive, very impressive. We were we were astounded by it. Uh, any vaporizing in the movie was created by rotoscoping, which is uh, a painting on top of a series of live-action stills. Meanwhile, the scenes uh, of items being vaporized were created by dissolving between otherwise identical shots, one with the item in place and the other with the item removed and burn marks being applied to it. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting, too, how they did that. Impressive, yeah. Um, when the scientists are uh, are about to project an image using the Martian lens, there are two separate shadows from the boom and mic. As soon as the projector screen is pulled down, there's a shadow from the boom that goes across the screen. At the same moment, the shadow from the mic can be seen on the wall <laughs> to the left of the projector screen. So a little funny, a little tiny mistake right there. <laughs> you know, you we talk about these almost every episode. where you, And there's thousands that we don't cover about just objects being picked up out of different hands or boom mics visible or shadows. Mm-hmm. It's just Minor always, continuity mistakes. It's just kind of all, even in movies today, it just always mm. baffles me that this stuff gets through. You know what it's I mean? It's the tiniest things always, yeah. And there's always those people that find it too. The amount of coffee cups in the Game of Thrones series. <laughs> Starbucks. Uh, 50 actors were actually filmed for the scene on the hill. Then their images were copied and pasted to create hundreds of people on the hill. Yeah. Um, after the army retreat from the first major Martian attack, Forrester and Sylvia are running to find a plane in which they escape. When they enter the aircraft, Sylvia is carrying a purse that she didn't have anywhere else before or afterward in the film. So another little boom out mistake. Right. Like, it's like small continuity <laughs> details. Like, all right. let, me, let me ask you, while, while we're on this topic of the plane, mm-hmm. let me ask you a question. So they, they get this plane that's like covered in brush or whatever, right? And they yeah. take off. Why do you fly right directly back in front of the Martians? They could have took off and flew anywhere in the world, but they went right back in front of them and it got shot down or whatever. The answer is because it looks cool, Jimbo. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It looks stupid. It makes you feel like it, it looked like an idiot. You should have went and flew safely away. They, they were, the pilot got in, the, got in the seat and flew the plane. He was like, ooh, bright lights. And he was actually like, he was a moth, so he just flew into the, you know... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that that bugged me. I was like, dude, you just got an escape yeah. route, and you go right back. You're just a fly like, to a bug zapper, yeah. man. That's all he was. That's all he was. <laughs> We're weak to our urges. In the farmhouse, when the Martian fled from Clayton and Sylvia, Charles Gamora, who had to control the Martian by kneeling in the costume, almost fell out of the back of the suit when one of the workers pulled the platform on which the Martian was kneeling out of the shot too fast. If you look closely at the scene, you can see the Martian is tipping over slightly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. um, just before the atomic bomb explodes, one of the extras that has his left hand on the screen does not have any goggles put on. So he just makes yeah. a pair of his hands. <laughs> I, I can't see you. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, I can see that happening in real life, too. Like, oh, snapping on my goggles. Well, uh, it reminds me, you know, when we have those solar eclipses or there's like, don't look at the sun while you do. Oh, immediately everyone's in the sun. Yeah, yeah. the sun. An eight-foot-tall miniature of City Hall was blown up from the inside and filmed on high-speed cameras, so that's pretty cool. In 2011, the World of Worlds was added to the National Film Registry of the United States Library of Congress. Yeah, I believe that puts it... Um, is it in public domain now? I don't believe it's public domain or not. Ooh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it is. Probably not, then. <laughs> uh, to create the mushroom cloud, a metal drum filled with explosive gas was detonated, which blew colorful explosive powders resting on top of the drum 75 feet into the air. Kyle, what's your thoughts on The War of the Worlds? The War of the Worlds is an excellent film and worth watching today. It's absolutely enjoyable and fun to good. Yeah, it's fun to it's fun to good. That's the word. Fun to good. Here. Fun to good. I write words <laughs> well. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. But overall, I thought it was an excellent film. Um, definitely worth watching anytime you like. And rewatching has a repeat viewing kind of experience. You can definitely gain a lot from it, especially all the cool practical effects. And like we said, the um, that UHD version is just absolutely incredible. So yeah, overall, enjoy the film quite a bit. Jimbo, how did you feel? about War of the Worlds. It's one of my favorite sci-fi movies. Um, the story is so intense. Um, mm. and, and you always wonder if, if aliens do exist. I'm not saying they do and I'm not saying they don't. But if they did exist and they did fall down in a meteor and they did hit Earth and they did pop out these robo robots Robots, yeah. <laughs> they used to say. Giant robot machines how, terrorizing the how world. How would the world react? Um, you remember in Independence Day, uh, they're all like on top of the Empire State Police. Take us with you. Take yeah. us with you. They, this, they're just like, and and the you see that in the the pastor in this movie when he's out there and he's like, I'm just gonna go talk to him. You know, <laughs> he's he's just. I come in peace. Best we can do. And yeah. then he gets vaporized. Yeah, it's actually it's a little surprising. Like we we recovered Nosferatu a while back, a little bit ago, and um, it's it's kind of a, they got sued by the Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's almost surprising that Independence State didn't get sued by H, the H.G. Wells estate for the amount of references they make in War of the Worlds. Because <laughs> it's like if, without like tripod alien ships, it's almost like the exact same story of like hitting it like instead of a virus killing the aliens, it's a computer virus destroying the mothership and all this kind of. And we never even talked about the know. end of this movie. Let's talk about that real quick. So. Uh, Kyle, how do they kill the aliens? God saves the day. <laughs> no, but, but <laughs> it seems to me morally, morally just implied that they just kind of drop dead, right? I mean, no, it yeah. was actually a human bacteria or whatever. They yeah. basically got the common cold, if you will. Yeah. And I and I think now I can't. I, I I read somewhere where it was because the Earth's atmosphere has particles flying around in it, and yeah. they were okay at the beginning, but as it the particles went on. It, as it, the invasion went on, yeah, they got right, infected. Which leads me back to another question: When uh, the Martian's walking around, and the doctor reaches out and grabs his leg, he's not wearing any gloves. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't. There could be the, the 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 germs going right there. You know, touching. So like it's like it's possible that moment was the end of the fight. Right. That's there, what I'm saying. Implied. He, yeah. He, which he basically uploaded to the subconscious of all the aliens, and they all died. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But yeah. Uh, but I don't know if that could be stated because. Um, Not definitively. No, but I'm just saying. But uh, you don't know if they were all connected together. Uh, bio whatever oh. because he only touched one alien and it went to one ship and there was remember there was hundreds of these all over the earth where they were in a group of threes yeah or whatever so but I think you can say because of the, since they all stopped around the world at the same time that it was something to do with the atmosphere and a germ or something getting in there like that so yeah yeah and that's and that of course stays close to the book too basically just being an ad for germ theory in the 50s basically right. so yeah. Uh, yes, I, I love this movie. I think it did a lot for special effects, for especially sci-fi. Um, I know you're a big sci-fi guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that it, it's a beautifully the story was told, and then I like how it was actually based off of the radio recording. Uh, and then, because you know, I like audio dramas uh, anyway. I used to listen to them all the time, yeah. and then great uh, way to pass the time, right? And then now uh, being one in the National Film uh, Preservation Board fantastic movie i think everybody should see it at least once uh just for the that ultra high definition version man i'm telling you it just opened Absolutely up a whole incredible. new world yeah yeah yeah. they just like it's like it's like they took a layer of varnish off an old painting you know right it's just as much as the colors like, oh, were wow. very vibrant yeah, 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 yeah you know what i mean like i didn't know that movie could be so pretty today but it, like you watch it it's like oh this is this is astounding right so, so and, uh, you know uh there you have it that is war of the worlds um if you uh would like to join us on our Facebook page. We have the Tragedy of Cinema uh, podcast group on Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter. I think it's just Tragedy of Cinema on Twitter. Um, we are on Instagram. Um, All the major networks, you know, the Tragedy of Cinema, you look it up and we will be there. You know, the, the, I got to tell this story on Kyle real quick. Kyle, the other day we were messaging in Facebook Messenger and he goes, Hey, uh, what about this movie? I don't think we've covered this movie before. I said, Kyle, I was like, you know, we, we have this thing called a podcast. You can go back and look. And then he starts posting me these pictures of memes and stuff. And I said, Kyle, you know, I posted this trailer of Buzz Lightyear like two days <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah. And he's like, oh. oh, yeah, right. Next thing you'll tell me we're recording a podcast this whole time. <laughs> so, uh, I'm real bad about social networks sometimes, right, guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually the one posting stuff on Facebook. Kyle chimes in every time he once in a while when he turns on his phone and actually accidentally hits the facebook the, button yeah yeah once or twice when i hit the button by accident <laughs> like oh no i'm on the tragedy cinema stuff right it's not that i don't love you fans and all that kind of stuff it's just that i don't see go on social media at all i'm a weird old man in that weird old way he's, he's more of a tiktoker <laughs> yeah tiktoker exactly i need to start that. hey kyle need you, you need to be the, the tragedy the, cinema TikTok tiktok that's <laughs> I'm gonna have Kyle start the the trailers trailers on TikTok. TikTok. It'd be good. Yeah, bad idea. (laughs) So uh, there you have it. Well, I think this. uh, And if you have a uh, request that you would like us to do, a listener request, we just did one for C. Kevin Donegan a couple weeks ago. Nosferatu, uh, Nosferatu. very good movie. Is it Nosferatu or Nosferatu? I'm pretty sure it's Nos. I think so. Snaz? It's Nas. Nas. <laughs> Nas. Nas. It's, as Vin Diesel would say, it's Nas. <laughs> uh, or, or is it Nas? Because mm-hmm. it's German. It's Nas. You, you hit the button in your car, you go really fast. That's Nas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we now have a fast charged up vampire? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> fast, you know, vampire on Nas. That's how it goes. Uh, but you only drive it at night. because <laughs> Street racing vampire movie? Let's write. Let's, oh, God. That's a podcast. I'm, a copyright. Copyright right now. Vampire street racing. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> All right, well, with that being said, uh, this is derailed off topic real quick. That being said, this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut.